I went to the line that day and I was like, I'm not scared of anybody here. Like these are guys I was always intimidated by and it was just different. I was like, I can beat these guys. And throughout the race, it just was about not settling because I got to a point where I was going to almost certainly be first team All-American. And in that moment, it was just about deciding like, all right, no, today that's not good enough. And then it was down to top five. And that was already exceeding my expectations. All right, that's not good enough. And then when it came down to top two, that was the hardest one because I was going to be pretty damn happy about a second place finish at nationals. And uh, the last 100, it was just, you know, one last reminder, like, you know, you've come this far, like just fucking like finish it, you know, (laughs) just like seal the deal. And I threw literally every ounce of energy I had into my arms to just flail myself to the finish line. And I can't even explain that feeling of just like, I can't believe this is all about to happen the way I always felt it was supposed to. To just know that everything I went through culminated in, you know, accomplishment that I always thought I could do, but doubted so often along the way. Hello, podcast world. Welcome to episode 52 of Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. Ben Flanagan grew up in a super close-knit, competitive family environment, loving Matt Sundin, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and all things hockey. To this day, on December 24th, his family and community still gather for a Dads vs. Kids hockey game. Body checks, punches, and bloody noses were all fair game. Ben was a hockey player trapped in a runner's body. Ben burst in the national scene winning the 2018 10,000 meter in a career-best 28-34 at the NCAA Outdoor Championships, where he unleashed a furious 56-second last 400 to outkick Vincent Kiprop over the final meters of the dramatic finish. Ben had come and seated 23rd out of 24 runners, and against all odds, became Michigan's first 10,000-meter national champ since 1989. He was also a big underdog entering the 2018 Thalmouth Road Race against a stacked pro field, which included four-time champs Stephen Sambu, Scott Fobble, and Lenny Career. He had to cover a late Scott Fobble surge, closed hard, flying across the finish line with panache, and was now become his signature finish. In 2021, Ben returned and recreated his flying Falmouth finish, and became part of a select group of repeat Falmouth champs. They've adopted Ben and the community, and he treasures the connection and long-standing traditions of this great race. We discuss high school-college days, key coaches' mentors, Christina Sullivan, his high school coach, Pete Grinberg's club coach, and Kevin Sullivan, a.k.a. Sully, his college coach at Michigan. Key race highlights, PRs, meaningful moments, the NCAA champs 2018, offset champs in high school, the Falmouth Road Race from 2018 and 2021, Big Ten champs 2014 to 2018, and running his first sub four mile in 2018, running a 357. His mindset during race and mantras, give yourself a chance, finish it. Bouncing back from injuries, including multiple stress fractures, changing training approach to remain healthy. What's next? Shooting for the Canadian half marathon record and super excited about making his marathon debut. Community service. 
help to facilitate exercise programs for children and adults with autism spectrum disorder. Met with college running programs over Zoom throughout the pandemic to share his story and encourage collegiate runners. Ben is grounded, humble, and someone you can easily root for. I'm all in on Ben and hope you all enjoy this convo as much as we did. So let's dive on in and take a listen. Good afternoon, Ben Flanagan. Welcome to Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. How you doing today, brother? Good, good, Ron. Uh, stoked to be here. So uh, thanks so much for having me. Oh, man. It's an honor to get you on, man. You must still be on cloud nine after racking up Falmouth win number two, man. How you feeling, man? Feeling good. It's been a good week. So uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, after these big ones, you know, when your head's in the clouds, it's uh pretty amazing how how fast time goes by so uh yeah it feels like i was just racing already a week's gone by but um having family and friends to celebrate with is uh it made it pretty special yeah that's got to be amazing and then even more special because anytime you come back and win such a storied race with the history that falmouth has i mean how many races do you have bill rogers and salazar with their names alongside and joan samuelson you know all the great men and women runners of our time have been slugging it out there for years the weather is always hot it's always challenging the course is tough and you know to get to put your name on that winner's cup for a second time at such a young age you got to be like so stoked yeah i mean it's uh it's pretty it's pretty wild to think about um you know, and, and truth be told, you know, when I graduated uh, from school and started running on the pro circuit for the first time, and, you know, I knew Falmouth about this huge event, but I didn't really know that much about the history of it. Um, so I got there, you know, wide-eyed and naive, and, um, you know, it was a race that I wanted to win, and I knew it was competitive, and I knew Sam Boo and uh, Lenny Career, these guys that I looked up to kind of right before um, my cycle of college, the guys that were there that I followed in high school. Um, so, you know, I knew when I won, it was a big deal, but I didn't quite understand, uh, the history that I guess I kind of printed my name on, um, kind of legends who run those roads before me. And, um, it wasn't until, you know, the, the type of people I started, you know, I got messages from Steve Jones, uh, from Rod Dixon and, I, and you know, still as, uh, as a 21 year old, I'm, I'm like, I know these names and I know they're really big deals, but like, I still don't quite know that that running history as well. So that's when I did a deep dive and started to learn more about, you know, the the New York City Marathon winners, the Boston Marathon winners, Chicago Marathon winners, uh, what Jones has done and Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers. And, um, you know, it's given me so much more of an appreciation. Um, but to uh, to be alongside names like that is is insane. And to even build a relationship with those type of athletes um, has been insane. So uh well, I'm on that note when I was in 2019 and, and I was injured and couldn't run, uh, Falmouth Road Race had me get involved with a lot of, you know, PR opportunities, which was great considering I won the year before. And I did a panel and it was, uh, it was Joan, uh, Shorter, Rogers and me on stage. And I was like, what the heck? Like, how did I find myself in this? Like, clearly there's not one out here. Um, but they were so welcoming, so inclusive, um, so enthusiastic about my career. Uh, but I was just sitting there in the microphone, my, like I was, I was on stage, like I was an audience member, just listening to their stories because, um, 
you know, they're legends and uh, the stuff they've accomplished uh, beyond just Falmouth is incredible. So um, such a cool history to just learn more about and continue to learn about through my career. That's beautiful. I love the fact that you're so open about, you really didn't know how much like the history was so deep in that race. And how could you? I mean, you're so young, you're not from that area, you know, from the Boston Mass or, you know, surrounding area. Everyone knows that it's it's literally like the biggest road race outside of running, you know, one of the major marathons, like as you said, like Boston or New York. So to be surrounded by that kind of company, man, that's like geeking out city. Like what, yeah, one of these does not fit, right? One of those objects does not fit. It's like the puzzle when you're a kid, you're like, okay, that one doesn't work. Okay. He goes it out. It would have been the easiest yeah. level of all time. They're yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. So it's cool though. Oh, uh, what a great experience and, and great job by Falmouth, you know, to bring you in because you were injured and you had won in 18. And that's where I met you for the first time with uh, my good buddy, Greg Mackin from New York. And a little shout out to Run Love New York since he kind of helped connect us to uh, to get you on the show today, which is which is totally awesome because anytime I can get a guest on who's just done something like that, man, it's just the energy is just great and you want to capture it. Um, but we all, as runners, whether you're super young at your age or you're old like me, man, there's always a battle, man. It's that battle to be healthy and to be fit, to try to get ready to win a race like that. You have to push the envelope. So of course, you're going to get injured at times. You're going to fight through it and you're going to have some dark periods. So it's going to be fun for us to kind of go through it all. But before we even get into any of that stuff, I would just love you to just do a little intro on yourself, kind of like where you grew up, talk a little bit about family life for you as a kid and, you know, your introduction to sports, not even running, just as a kid. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm from a city called Kitchener, Ontario, uh, which is about 45 minutes from Toronto uh, in Canada. Uh, the only reason anybody uh, on here might have heard of it is, you know, because they got family there or they follow junior hockey. That's about... Uh, the Kitchener Rangers are the only thing they think about. Um, but uh, for me, um, you know, really close to my family. My dad's one of 10 um, that all live locally. So I grew up with about 36 cousins uh, as my best friends. Uh, so family's just always been a huge part of my life. Um, you know, we, we I'm back home in Canada actually right now as we speak. Um, and, you know, our door's unlocked. Um, we never have just our immediate family here. There's people coming and going. Um, so I grew up in a very social setting, um, and family being very important, um, from the athletic side of things, uh, you know, being Canadian, I started skating when I was about four years old, uh, started playing hockey at five and, uh, played all the way until high school. And, uh, once I, uh, missed my growth spurt, it was about time for me to hang them up because, uh, I started running well, I was five foot six and, uh, I was one bad check away from never running again. So, uh, at that time in my life, if someone had a game misconduct or a major and they needed someone to serve in the penalty box, I'd be like, yeah, put me in. Like, that's another two minutes of safety <laughs> for me. So um, about 16 years old is where I really made that transition to running. Um, and the summertime was always just about finding a sport in the off season. So I, I played hockey in the winter and then I played baseball, soccer, lacrosse, um, nothing really that well. I was very athletic. Like I played a variety of sports and I was naturally okay at everything, but I, I really wasn't great at anything um, until running came along. And uh, both my sisters, um, I've got two older sisters. Um, I'm the youngest of my family. Um, they uh, joined the high school, St. Mary's High School cross-country team and became very close with the coach, uh, Christina Sullivan. Um, you know, our relationship now, she was over earlier using our pool. Uh, we're very close family friends. Um, and they loved the coach and the environment so well 
they encouraged me to come out for the cross country team. And that was my introduction to the sport. Um, and then me just being, you know, between being naturally talented at it, enjoying the, the culture and, um, kind of just this, this burning passion, uh, for wanting to get better at things, um, just made this combination for me to really excel at something more than I ever had before. Love it. What a great intro. 36 cousins. I mean, we're talking about multiple football teams, soccer teams. I mean, I got, I got to get, I get the sense there's probably a pretty competitive group, man. When you guys are all getting together, were you guys all mixing it up at everything from Monopoly to any kind of sports games at any holidays when you guys were together or what was, what was it like? A hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't know if, uh, you know, that like we call it mini sticks or mini hockey. Like that's, that was our life. We played mini hockey, road hockey, when we weren't playing ice hockey, we were playing a different form of hockey. And, uh, yeah, that's where the body checks into the couch, the bloody noses, you know, a couple punches here and there, like that's where that happened. Um, so yeah, my family, um, in general, we had a bunch of hockey players and then I had two aunts that owned dance studios. Um, so our family grew up, uh, playing hockey and dancing and, and I actually spent a few years, uh, doing dance as well. Um, I always talk about how I, how I, I did break dance and, and this is a crazy fun fact, but is a hundred percent true. Uh, I, at one point I was actually in the same break dancing class as Justin Bieber, um, which is nuts. He came for like a one month period while I was there. Um, but, uh, I also did, I, I brag about the break dancing, but I also did the jazz, the tap, the, I did a little bit of ballet. I did it all for about three years. And then, uh, I wasn't very good at it and I was more disruptive than anything in the class. So eventually got the boot. So, uh, but yeah, so outside that, the, 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 while the girls were dancing, the guys were playing hockey, we were competitive at it all. Um, so we did do some board games and, you know, there'd be a kid to flip the board and everything like that. But, uh, it was just chaos. It was just may it was organized mayhem wherever we went. And, uh, we still to this day have a Flanagan hockey game on December uh, 24th, where we all lace them up and, and play hockey. But we've been doing that since, uh, we were five years old, the, the kids against the dad. So, um, yeah, it's been pretty cool, um, to have those traditions and, um, you know, get everyone in the same place for that mayhem. Love it. It's big family energy, man. And I live for that, man. It's like, I, I did not have a really big family, but we've lived with a very big family lifestyle because my mom always encouraged us every sports team I had rolling through football season, ba uh, basketball, wrestling. As I got older, I switched to wrestling. Um, and baseball, I was a college baseball player. So my mom always encouraged like, hey man, bring your, bring your teammates home, bring your friends home. So it was like, she didn't have to ask me more than once. I'd be bringing like six kids back from football practice. I'm like, hey man, your mom's a really good cook. Can I come to your house? I'm like, yeah, my mom said it's cool. Come on over. So, you know, the next thing you know, there's like nine kids there. But yeah, I love the open door policy and I love the hockey and the fist fights because uh, another thing we did, we, we, we did something called knee football. My brothers and I, in the middle of our living, we just got on our knees and just played football. We're like blocking each other, tackling, elbowing, the whole thing. People don't get it. Like that like forms your toughness, man. I'm, I'm not much bigger than you. I'm like five, eight and a half or so. So it's, it's very much you realize your limitations, man. I love football. And I loved playing linebacker and fullback because I liked hitting people. But as <laughs> kids are like three times your size, all of a sudden you're like, hmm, just maybe isn't going to work out for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I couldn't call, hey, put me in the penalty box because I might have <laughs> yeah. been doing that myself. But, you know, it's the pre-Fontaine story, man. You're, you're a pre-story, man. Pre had that toughness and the feistiness growing up in Coos Bay. He was a big, he was a big kid in a small body, man. And he just like wanted to take anybody and everybody on. And 
he eventually found his way to running. So definitely sounds like you got some parallels there. You must know pre-story, man, because who doesn't, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm big. Uh, Without Limits was a big movie I like to watch before my races growing up. Uh, you know, I loved, uh, I just loved everything that was represented about pre and, uh, you know, classic high school kid, uh, everything or and to give anything less than your best is sacrifice the gift poster, you know, in my dorm room going to Michigan. So uh, yeah, I was all about it. Love it. I mean, how could you not be right? So your, your two sisters were good runners at St. Mary's, like had a good connection with the coach bring you in. And did you find out like right away you had talent or was it like a slow moving thing? Like how did, how did it work out? Like in, in grade school, high school running for you when you, when you got pulled in? Yeah. Um, it was somewhat immediate that there was like potential, like, uh, our local meets I would do well at. Um, and then, uh, kind of the, the, the TSN turning point. That's a, that's a phrase used in Canada for our, for our sports center channel. But, uh, I guess the, the turning point really was, um, our team had a chance to make a offsa. That's, that's what our state equivalent is called our, our Ontario provincial championship wildly overhyped and big deal event in, uh, in, in my home province. Um, naturally we're a very pop, it'd be like the California state meet, a very populated province relative to other, uh, provinces. So it's, it's a pretty, pretty big event, but anyways, um, our grade 10 team had the chance to make OFSA, uh, as a team. And I was in grade nine and in Canada, uh, we don't have everyone run together. Like it's, there's a grade nine category, grade 10 category, and then grade 11, 12. And we actually have a fifth year. That's, that's the third category. So it's not like everyone runs a 5k, no matter the age group. But anyways, um, our grade 10 team had the ability to make off. So they knew I was pretty good and, and could potentially add some value to the team. So I actually moved up to join the grade 10 team to give them a shot to make offsa. And at the qualifier event, I actually like ran away with it and won it individually, which was not at all supposed to happen. Like it was like, everyone thought I was a stupid high schooler going out too fast. And I ended up winning by, you know, 20 seconds. And that was a moment that they're all like, wow, like we might really, we might really have something here. Um, so then I went to the provincial meet and kind of the scale above, same thing. I ended up coming third. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I, I wouldn't have even expected to do that in my own age group, let alone the great age group above. Um, and that was the moment where then, you know, my high school coach, I was so lucky to be, uh, mentored by someone so successful. She was a seven time all American from Villanova herself, like just understood, you know, real, real running talent, the collegiate system development. Um, and that's where she really encouraged me like, Hey, let's get you to a track club. Let's get you some coaching. Uh, you know, if you dedicate your time to this, um, we can really go somewhere. And, um, that was kind of the, the nudge I needed to start taking it a lot more seriously. And, um, my big goal from there was to make team Ontario. And, and then from that point on, it just went to team Canada, getting a scholarship. And there was always just something to chase. And, um, you know, I just loved that ride. That's beautiful. And so your coach was Christina Sullivan in high school, right? Yeah. She's, yeah, exactly. she's the one who had the Villanova seven times all American. Um, if you think about it, there's always a little luck involved with every person who's an overachiever or somebody who really is successful in life. You know, you could have been like XYZ coach who really didn't care about running at all and was like, whatever, I'm not interested. Or it could be like, well, wait a minute, this kid really has talent and I'm going to protect him. I'm going to make sure he doesn't injure himself, burn himself out, blow himself up. 
because it's so prevalent. It happens so many times, not just in Canada and New Jersey, in California and Texas, anywhere, because look, face it, man, high school coaches, they want to win their state meet or their OFSA qualification, whatever they're shooting for or gunning for, they want to make sure the team gets it done. And a lot of times the athletes themselves can be a little bit pawns to a degree. You know, this girl's really has talent. This boy's got talent. Let's push or over push. And the next thing you know, the kid's burned out, injured, and doesn't even end up running at college. Or maybe they run really well in high school because they're protected by a coach like you had. But then when they make their move up on the other side of the coin, they get pushed the other way. So this, in this first leg of your development, it was very fortuitous um, that you had a family connection, but not only a family connection, but someone with real, you know, chops herself as an athlete and as a coach. Yeah. And she, you know, that's exactly it. And I, I think you make such a great point because, um, you know, I kind of had a, um, I don't know what the best way to put it, but I had kind of an overachiever mindset, like for better, or for worse. And, uh, like I distinctly remember a conversation I had with Christina, um, basically when I told her, you know, I wanted to start doubling, for example, in high school running twice a day, her, you know, reining me in and saying like, that's not something you need to do yet. I didn't start doubling until college. Um, I think there's other things we could do to get better um, before taking that step. And uh, in addition to that, um, she actually guided me to my club coach because in Canada, we kind of have more of a club-based system uh, for com competition outside of high school. Um, so if you want to continue to run meets outside of the high school season, you have to join a club. Um, anyways, I, I joined what was called the Tri-City Track Club with a coach called Pete uh, named Pete Grinsberg, Grinberg's there. And, um, Pete also was a perfect fit for me because he was so laid back, uh, very low structure, uh, for someone who, who was so like, I guess, um, type a and, um, wanted that structure and wanted to kind of push the envelope. Um, that contrast was really helpful for my development, uh, cause it kind of kept me on a trajectory that I think was more sustainable and, uh, more focused on just enjoying the love of the sport rather than, you know, going straight for immediate results. Yeah, it's it's so important um, at any level of running that we're at, um, particularly somebody who's new is coming into the sport because I, I strongly encourage just trying to get people up off the couch. And it's funny you're saying lace them up for hockey, but that's how I close off my podcast. I'm like, keep lacing them up, keep getting out the door and always remember to stay in the fight. That's my mantra. But it's like, Every day, like we have our habits, we have our activities, you know, that, that can change the, the space that we're in. You know, we're a little bit overweight, we're a little bit down, we're in, a, we're in a dark hole. Or we push too hard, we got injured, now we have to come back from the other side. So the habits and, you know, being around people that are looking out for you, particularly if you're that type A type who's always going to push, you're ready to go all in on doing two-a-day runs at a very young age, which I would have been, been doing it. I might not have even asked. So I know how I am. Luckily, she was looking out for your long-term interest and also giving you the information, not just like being selfish about it, just like, no, no, you're not ready yet. Let's just let's just wait a little bit on this. And then you get transitioned over to the club coach side. It's another great experience for you. Um, how does the recruiting process start to work? Um, I know you ran at Michigan and you can tell us about that, but how did the recruiting process work? I mean, did you have a lot of schools talking to you? Like how what what age were you in high school where schools were like starting to reach out to you? Yeah. So by the time, so basically yeah, I mentioned, I wanted to go to meet team Ontario, was able to do that. Next up, I wanted to meet team Canada, was able to represent Canada uh, and Lille, France at the world youth championships when I was 16. 
Um, so I had some good performances under my belt. By the time I entered my recruiting year, I was probably the equivalent of a four, four, 10, nine minute, two mile. So four, 10 miler, nine minute, two miler, which back in my high school days, uh, was pretty highly recruitable. So, um, I got a lot of interest, um, a lot of opportunities, uh, you know, came, uh, came my way, which was great. Um, but I also had, again, between Christina and her husband who ran at Harvard, uh, they encouraged me to also do outreach myself. Uh, so I reached out to some schools, which opened up some more pipelines. Um, eventually, uh, I narrowed down my list to Michigan, um, Virginia, and Wisconsin were the three schools. Uh, once I, w- I had that list of schools, I, I was pretty much confident being like, all right, I don't really think there's another situation that I need to add to this list. I think this is this is as good as it's going to get for, for me. These are, these are the best cases I could get. Um, I, I guess the only places I would have also liked to visit that uh, the timing just wasn't right from a recruiting perspective was Villanova and Notre Dame. Um, but those just weren't on the table at the time. So um, I loved Michigan, loved Virginia, loved Wisconsin, all great academic fits as well. Um, the funny thing about Michigan was I actually be, got recruited from Pete Watson at Virginia, who's now at Texas. And um, he's Canadian, so he knows the office system, found me. Um, and I actually wasn't hearing from Michigan at any point. And Christina, having close ties to Ann Arbor, Michigan, her, her grandma's from Ann Arbor, she was like, wow, like you should really look into Michigan. It's a great school, could be a great fit. I'm surprised they haven't reached out to you. So she emailed coach Alex Gibby at the time and said, Hey, what the heck? Like this guy's right across the border and I'm flat two mile. Like what's the deal? And he actually was like, I'm great friends with Pete Watson. The only reason I know of Ben is from Pete. I kind of have my principle that I don't go after my friends athletes unless they uh, reach out to me first. So I'm not going to recruit Ben, but if he's interested in Michigan and reaches out to me, it's fair game. So I did that. And then sure enough, I end up actually going to Michigan. So uh, again, just another matter of Christina kind of advocating for me on my behalf that uh, had a drastic impact on uh, my career overall. And um, I was just so excited to go to Michigan alongside uh, my high school teammate, Jamie Fallon, who actually ended up going on to be a NCAA champion for Michigan as well. We were from the same high school and the same recruiting class. Wow. Unbelievable. Rocking it. Rocking it at a incredible school like Michigan with a storied history again in running. Uh, the Michigan workout may be one of the most famous workouts of all time. Anything that a workout named after a school is always uh, always a pretty, pretty amazing thing. So does the workout, does it, does it take on more legendary uh, feelings when you're there at a school like that? Or, or is it like not as, not as prevalent today as it used to be? Oh, it's, it's got a huge impact being there. It's so hype. So the really funny thing about my experience at Michigan was I was I was recruited by Alex Gibby, who I trained with and competed with for a year. He was awesome. Um, I, I went to Michigan a big part of because he was the coach there. And I I felt like I had such a good relationship with him going there. Um, after a year, he was no longer at Michigan and in came Kevin Sullivan. Um, who's like a staple Michigan man, like multiple time NCAA champion, Canadian Olympian for Michigan. So it's funny because a lot of people don't realize I actually wasn't recruited by Sully, who um, was an all-time idol of mine before I even got there. I had, you know, I had collages of, of Sully on artwork that I did in high school and he just like organically became my coach. Like it was just 
the wildest coincidence that ended up working out from a situation where I was devastated from another coach leaving. Um, but anyways, with Sully came all these traditions of uh, the way he trained, the way he was coached by Ron Warhurst, naturally the Michigan, a, a workout he did throughout his experience. Um, so I didn't actually do a Michigan until my second year there when Sully came on board. And I remember it so vividly because Nick Willis came to watch, uh, Olympic medalist from New Zealand and Michigan alum. Ron Warhurst came to watch, the creator of the Michigan. And uh, the environment was just electric. So um, to do it there, these like nuanced um traditions like starting the 2k from the steeple pit like those are the things that you don't even people don't even know because it's just the michigan thing um to kind of just observe like wow this is where it was really created and now we're doing it and we're the next generation to take this on uh was really cool and uh from the side note it's something a workout that you really develop into like it's something that just crushes the freshman <laughs> every year. Uh, so to kind of earn your Michigan, your successful workout and see the guy struggle and, uh, you know, tell them like, Hey, it's only going to get better. Like I promise these are benchmarks, remember them. Cause you're going to smash them in a year. Um, it's just such a cool staple to have in our training routine. I mean, what a, what an unbelievable, you know, thing to happen. You know, a guy you idolize, a Canadian, a great Canadian runner, multiple time, you know, all American, someone you like basically look up to and have posters of and idolize just all of a sudden. And you have the connection with the coach or He's leaving. So here it is. It's the roller coaster. Like, oh no, he's leaving. Oh no, he's leaving. Oh wait, wait a minute. He's coming in this guy. Like, my God, it could have gone in so many directions. And right. I remember you know, crying. Yeah. Like I was devastated. Of course. I mean, who wouldn't be? I mean, you know, we're not, we're not adult. I mean, I'm not an adult at 60, so I don't want to speak for you, but I don't plan on growing up anytime soon. I like being, <laughs> I like being immature and being a kid. It helps to keep me young, but I'd have been like, what the heck is going on here, man? I signed up for this and it, now I'm not getting this. And then absolutely like the best possible thing of all worlds comes together. So you then you get exposed to more of the traditions that he was exposed to from Ron Warhorse. He's back in the program, you know, on site, you know, obviously, uh, you know, just uh, Willis and all these other amazing runners that are still part of that community that are like, you know, deeply, deeply embedded in that community. So what, what an amazing experience. So what was it like for you coming in, in terms of like expectations? Were you putting like big expectations on yourself? Was the team Many times that that line is really, really fun, uh, you know, hard to define. A lot of times it is the athlete themselves that are doing it more even than the coaches because, you know, you want to feel like you're earning your place, you're earning your scholarship, you're scoring points. Are you running for, you know, with the first team, et cetera? Like, what was that like for you when you were first breaking in? Yeah, it was um, it was definitely a tough transition and uh, a lot of pressure. Um, the, the thing for me that was unique is, um, you know, I think I speak of a lot of a lot of Canadians where I didn't quite understand uh, scholarship allocation. I didn't understand Title IX. I didn't understand really caps on scholarship. Um, so I came in as a you know a big scholarship athlete. I came in on a full scholarship, and uh, when it was kind of like outlined like what the expectations were, and I started to realize kind of how rare that was on a track team. I I was like, oh, I guess like I didn't realize like this is how rare this happens. And all of a sudden, I guess I realized like, okay, they they, they really expect a lot. Um, I felt like kind of like in debt to the team, you know, it's like they invested so much in me. Um, I need to, I need to show my value. 
Um, so, you know, coming in right away, I wanted to make an impact. My goal was to run on the top five in the cross country team in my first semester, uh, which I did was able to be 99th in cross country, which was awesome at the NCAA meet. Um, and then indoors and outdoors were really tough, uh, adapting to the training. Um, just, I, again, kind of dug myself in a hole based on my overachiever mentality. Um, I just, you know, I was probably running more than I ever had in my freshman year. I just started running hundred miles a week and it crushed me. I was tired. Um, just, I, I tried so hard to adapt and, and transition as quick as possible that I kind of just didn't let my legs catch up. Um, but over time I got better and, um, I, I set my goals accordingly. Um, I think the hardest part was seeing other athletes, um, come in that I either was competitive with or beat in high school, um, make an immediate impact and like soar like that to me, that was probably the hardest thing. Um, I mean, a great example is Justin Knight, <laughs> uh, who I'm now teammates with, but, um, like I can say, you know, in all honesty, like seeing Justin come in and immediately become one of the best guys in the country, like that, I couldn't calculate that in my brain. I was like, well, what the heck? Like I was beating him in high school. He's now way up here and he's running things. I couldn't even imagine making like making up that gap. Um, so like that was challenging. Cause at first I felt like whatever I get it, like slow and steady at my own pace, but see these other athletes come in and have no issue, like just crushing it right away. I was just like, well, like, what am I doing wrong? Um, so it was a constant practice of just reminding myself that, you know, my journey is unique. It's my own and, uh, not to compare myself too much to others. And, um, you know, surely over time, I just had some indications that breakthroughs were on the horizon. And, uh, you know, it took me five years to really come to the potential that I thought I, I, I had. So I came in the goal of wanting to win NCAAs. I left winning NCAAs, but there was a ridiculous amount of uncertainty uh, from point A to point B in revolved of like not e- not only whether I was going to win NCAAs, but whether I was going to you know score at conference, whether I was even going to run again based on some injuries. Um, so yeah, it was a wild ride, <laughs> but I enjoyed every minute of it, and I had an amazing team there, and we were able to win some team titles on the way. Um, so yeah, it was kind of just taking on the highs and. Uh, you know, getting through the lows and um, coming out the other side stronger with every like little bit of adversity I had to face. Great stuff. So let's dive in on a couple of those points. Obviously, every school is so different academically. Uh, Michigan's a a super tough academic school. Um, Not speaking, you know, Justin's an amazing runner and and put put together not only a great NCAA career, but he is just killing it now as a pro, (laughs) you know, Olympics and just everything. I mean, just remarkable, Uh, super talented. Um, but obviously how you handle the workload, the increase in mileage, academics, being on a campus life, being alone, you know, being out there in the universe, these are all things that no one is really prepared for. I sure as hell know I wasn't when I was playing like 80 games a year in baseball and I was basically away more than I was at class or, or school. We were traveling and going to four or five different schools and we're on a plane and we're getting off and it's just, it's hard to put into words what a lifestyle change that is. You know, one year you're in high school and your mom's cooking all your meals. And the next thing you know, you're living on some huge university and you're jetting off to your, in your case, meets my, in my case, it's baseball games. So who did you have, or did you have anyone that you could talk to about like what those feelings were like for you that helped you kind of just keep some perspective on it, 
to have like a long-term view to not get too down as, as you were going through that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my family was definitely, uh, a huge part of it. Um, you know, always in throughout my whole career to this day, um, with me, the highs and lows, <clears throat> they were always a phone call away. And I took them up on that quite often. Um, you know, I did have a long distance girlfriend at the time and, uh, definitely relied pretty heavily on, uh, talking to her every day, you know, long distance as a freshman, you know, that, that also, <laughs> that was, that also came with its own, you know, difficulties as well. Uh, but, you know, definitely spent a lot of times just talking to her about things that, um, you know, were challenging for me that I didn't, maybe didn't feel comfortable talking to my mom to make her worry or my teammates because it was about them. <laughs> I don't know, you know, and then, uh, but then also my teammates um, at the same time, like uh, I became very, very close with my recruiting class. Uh, we had a huge class of 11 guys, uh, you know, became my best friends along the way, ended up living with uh, pretty much all of them between two houses next door to each other. Um, so uh, a lot of support um, along the way. And uh, yeah, there was certain, certain things that it felt most appropriate to lean on one specific uh, support network, I guess, but having all three of them um, made a pretty big difference and, you know, feeling alone and uh, feeling like you always had someone that understood what you were going through. Yeah. And we can't function without that. So what a blessing that you have such a close family that they're there for you, uh, whether it's physically, you know, in person or just uh, via phone call and uh, for the support. And many times it's not to provide the answers. Uh, I know in my own case of my son who's grown in 23 now, a lot of times I just listen to him, man. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to give him the answers. You know, I just have learned that, you know, when he was younger, sure. I was always trying to point him one way or another and give him my own influence or spin. And now I just more or less try to like help guide him to his own answers and let him make his own calls because uh, that's part of the parenting life. And, you know, you're a young guy, so you don't have to worry about those things now, but you've been, <laughs> but you've been learning though. No, you're in a big family, a big extended family, and you understand the value of it, you know, from all sides, how, you know, that support means so much and it forms your character and it makes you the person that you are. Yeah. A hundred percent. I feel that way. And, um, you know, that certainly resonates with me and, uh, that, yeah, everything served its certain purpose. And, uh, being able to just talk to my family and even though they weren't right beside me was incredibly valuable. And then having teammates that are physically present to just live with, you know, live and exist with and, um, you know, experience, you know, being around people and socializing and just distractions, you know, that, that served a huge role as well. And, um, yeah, I'm an incredibly interdependent and interpersonal person. So, um, yeah, I, I've always kind of needed someone uh, by my side, whether it's virtually or physically. And uh, fortunately, I've, you know, I've been very privileged to have that experience. Thank God for Zoom, right? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Zoom, Zoom changed our lives during COVID, man. We we're all like in a dark spot. But then we started figuring out we could have cocktail hours and host podcasts. And who knows, maybe we'll keep figuring out more stuff. But yeah, no I, kidding. I know it bailed me out many a time. So, um, through the college years, you know, so you're, you're trying to assimilate, you're trying to get used to this mileage, you're trying to get stronger, you got your workload, you're watching other runners from afar who maybe that you have beaten and stuff that are kind of taken off. When does it start to come together? Is it, you know, sophomore, junior year? Is it later on? Like, when does it really start to come together where you really start to feel like, hey, I'm on my path now. I, I sense that I'm going in the right place and, and the good things really are going to happen. Yeah. Um... There were definitely moments. I would say moment one was my sophomore year. Um, 
I was having probably the worst season of my life. I opened up uh, a 5K in 15 minutes flat out in Arizona and followed that up with an 831 3K um, out in California. So two performances that to the level of expectations I had on the team were um, very, very far off, slower than what I've run in high school. Um, you know, and I, and it was, and it was weird because I was an athlete that always had a travel spot. I was good enough that I never had to worry about it. And there was a period where I was like, wow, I'm, I'm not running well enough that I might not even, you know, make the bare minimum qualifications of what I'm supposed to be doing. And, uh, I remember talking to, to my coach and he, you know, I told him like, I understand whatever decision you have to make. Like, I don't expect you to make any exceptions because I'm a, you know, my high school PRs or the scholarship level I'm on. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, I believe in you. Like, let's go out and to California and just give another shot and went out there and was able to put together a good performance that got me one more trip to another trip. And that one went well. And that finally got me my trip to big tens. So I barely scraped by. Um, and then, you know, finally um, just had a breakthrough performance, was able to, to, you know, medal at big tens as a, as a freshman eligibility uh, score six points for the team, which was, you know, a huge over, over achievement for the status of my season um, and was largely celebrated by my team. So that was, that was definitely checkpoint number one. And then number two, uh, my junior year uh, winning big tens for the first time in the 10,000 meter, trying out a new event, uh, which now, you know, has become kind of my staple event, um, you know, going to conference and actually winning something on the track was something I never uh, had much experience throughout my whole career. Um, so to be able to compete at that level and score 10 points for the team, um, make NCAAs for the first time that year, that was, that was as close as I got to being like, wow, I'm, I'm almost there. You know, I'm almost mixed up with the big dogs. I got one more step and, uh, sure enough, that's, that's kind of sometimes the stuff, the moment that gets you in trouble. And, um, I just, uh, I almost wanted it too bad, uh, ramped up the training and, you know, wasn't recovering well enough and, uh, found myself in, a, in one of the worst injuries, uh, of my career shortly after that experience. Um, and that set me back so far. Um, and then I had to kind of climb my way out of that one, um, which resulted in my last year of college. And that's kind of where all the magic happened. So, um, I had a, a couple moments, indicators that, you know, the potential was really there. Uh, but it really wasn't until my last semester of school that, um, you know, I really felt like I, found myself and was like, okay, this is the athlete that I was meant to be. Um, and that's kind of a whole nother story, I guess. <laughs> well, we, we gotta, we gotta talk through that. Um, but <laughs> yeah. first, first I, I have a question. Um, the fact that you had that discussion with your coach, um, basically more or less saying, Hey, you know, you, if you have to bench me, bench me, that's not the proper term, but it is really, you know, take me off the plane, send somebody else in my spot, you know, give somebody a chance to lace them up and go on the starting line. You know, to some degree, I wonder if that almost didn't take the pressure off you, the fact that you just had that actual conversation. It'd be one thing if he knocked on your door and said, hey, Ben, you know, you're not cutting. <laughs> I think we're going to like sit you down for a while and let you get it together. Like you, you kind of either initiated or at least put it out there to him. And maybe in some way it freed you up a little and just said, hey, you know, he believe he's saying, I'm going to give you another shot. Let's just, let's just take it from there. And, you know, maybe that freed you up in some way to just like cut it loose and, and run at a little, a better level. What do you think? Yeah, I totally buy that. And, um, you know, historically, like some of my best performances have been where the edge has taken off and, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. Like, like dealing with a lot of pressure is, is difficult. You know, there's always, always a baseline level of a lot of pressure. And if that's added on even more and, um, it's just, uh, 
a lot of my career, you know, having someone that really believes in you and supporting you and, um, you know, is unconditionally supportive of you is definitely goes a long way. And, um, I think that was one of the biggest values of mine and Sully's relationship. Um, yeah, that was demonstrated at more than just that occasion. And obviously it paid dividends. So he believed in you, he stuck with you and then you paid it forward, right? You gave, you, you took a little pressure off yourself. He believed in you. He put the chip back on you and said, you know, I'm still, still betting on, still betting on Ben. Um, and yeah, we need that. We need a coach. We need a mentor. We need not just our family members. We need the people who believe in us um, that can make all the difference. Because um, somebody who has that type A, that driven, have to succeed, will push it all ends. We can break ourselves, man. It's it's there. Um, but at the same time, there's a reason why you can have great success like you've had. Because you're willing to go to the mat. You're willing to push <laughs> it and yeah. do things that a lot of other people wouldn't do. You know, you'll ride that fine line and just drive like really hard. So my question is, where do you think that huge drive that you have comes from? Ah. Uh. I have no idea. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I really like to do well. Um, I care a lot about what others think of me, um, you know, for better, or for worse. Um, and, uh, you know, as I got further in my career, like the, the, my, my performances kind of became a little bit, um, you know, bigger than me. You know, I, I had support from, um, my family, my, my friends, my, even high school teachers, you know, you name it, people, you know, start to believe in you and, uh, you represent something that they're proud to support. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's kind of always just set the bar that I, I wanted to just represent, you know, people, um, people that support me represent myself as best as I can. Um, and, uh, I'm just highly motivated by, by that and wanting to, um, do well for others. Uh, so I feel like I've always responded quite well if, um, you know, having a great coach and wanting to run well for a great coach, it, you know, maybe willing to put it all on the line. So yeah, I'm not totally sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm thankful that, um, there's been times in my career. Uh, I mean, I haven't won everything and, uh, the times I do go down, I at least like to go down swinging, you know? So, um, it is important for me to, to lay it all out there, whether I'm ready or not, um, and see what happens. And, uh, a lot of times people only remember the times when it works out <laughs> the times where I fell flat on my face, you know, it means a lot, you know, it's devastating to me and, um, it's still impactful to me, but most of the time, those are the ones people don't care about that much. And, um, you do that enough times and, one of the times they work out, that's where everyone celebrates. And those are the moments you kind of just do it for. Yeah. Um, we learn a heck of a lot more from our failures and we learn a lot more when we break ourselves, you know, or when we break down or we just go, you know, a few steps too far or too many, too many hard workouts in a week or, or not enough easy miles, not enough recovery miles, or just not listening to our body when you actually know something is a problem. Even though you have the ability at a great school like Michigan to get worked on and have trainers and people that can, you know, do their best to keep you healthy. You're still a young kid. You're young in so many ways and our bodies are still developing and you're just, you know, putting all this mileage, work, academics, you know, sleep, 
travel. There's just a lot going on and your body's got to process all that. And it's easy, you know, when you're chasing an NCAA title or trying to score for the team <laughs> in a meet, it's easy to just literally crack. And I don't just mean physically in every way. It's, it's sure it may manifest itself physically, but sometimes it's just the weight of all of it comes and it's just like, boom, that's when the stress fracture actually happens. That's when you end up on the side of the road because you're taking all of this on, right? And you want to succeed for the team. You want to earn your spot. You want to make your family proud. You want to do all these things. But hey, man, sometimes we just go too hard, too far, and then we have to pay the price. And the stress fracture are the ones that uh, just can't fight through that. <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> you can't. So uh, those are the ones that just say, hey, enough is enough. You're stopping. And if you don't, it's only going to get worse. And those are the moments where you just have to reflect, accept the state you're in and try to learn from it and, you know, just reset it all and start from ground zero. And um, it's not necessarily a fun experience, but I think um, it was very valuable for me and shaped um, my approach to training going forward and my um how much I try to emphasize sustainability now in my training uh, to make sure I'm not getting the best out of myself, but not at the cost of any long-term injury or any major setbacks. Um, so it's uh, it was a necessary uh, expense. So you're you're learning, which is which is fantastic. What kind of changes would you would you make or have you made based on some of those injuries in terms of how you're training now or were were training at the time you know that you were injured even in college? Let's say. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the biggest one is 100% like the less is more attitude compared to the more is more. Um, you know, I I was very more is more. It, like my mindset when I entered college, I considered myself ordinary. Like I wasn't doing anything that any other athlete couldn't do. Like I thought like my training routine was was um was it was able to be replicated. And to me, I felt the only way to get better was to do extraordinary, train in a way that no one else could. Um, and that's a great idea in theory. You know, it's like if you can do that, like that was what I thought like was going to take me to the next level. And, um, you know, it, it, my my last year of NCAAs or, or my last collegiate season was so wild because I had this combination of circumstances that just confined me to this very, very limited um, amount of time and energy to commit to training. And my product yield was just higher than ever. And it just completely flipped everything that was like, well, I'm trained, I'm doing way less than some points in my life where I was five years younger or, you know, running a minute slower. And I'm now, running so much better than ever. So, um, I really just did a lot less and I dedicated energy to the things that were, that I thought were like high yield, um, training methods and things that I didn't think I was getting a lot from. I either minimized the amount of time and energy I put them in into them, or I took them out entirely. Um, and it allowed me to really just focus on kind of big picture, like, okay, what are the things that I'm really going to get better from? And that's what I'm going to lean into. And, um, you know, I'm always continuously shaping my, you know, methodology and my training. And obviously a lot of influence comes from the coaches I work with. Um, but yeah, the next step was then trying to figure out like, okay, what time of the year is it, is it time to push and what time of the year is it to, to, um, you know, really scale it back. But, um, 
the biggest takeaway for sure is I went from running a hundred miles a week as a freshman to 55 to 60 as a 10 K runner, as a senior. And, you know, that's when I won NCAAs and, uh, you can't really argue with those results. Once you're running that well, it's like, well, clearly this is working. So I'm going to keep doing this. And, uh, now I'm somewhere in the middle, but I mean, even this summer, I kind of went back to the basics and was back to 60, 70 mile runner. And, um, again, you know, you just, it feels good to feel good. And you start smashing workouts, the confidence goes up. And before you know it, you're on a tear. So, um, and obviously, yeah, all this stuff talking about isolated, um, is a little bit dangerous. There's a, there's a more comprehensive picture to it all, but, um, yeah, overall, I don't think you need to be an absolute animal and do anything no one else can do, um, to be the best version of yourself. I think you just need to understand your limitations, uh, work with what the energy you do have and channel it in productive ways and, and whatever that is for each individual. And that's kind of where the magic happens. That's, that's wonderful advice distilled beautifully. Um, because the secret sauce is figuring out, yeah, we want to be the best version of ourselves, not just as runners, but in life, but that's the secret sauce of life. So of course, more means better. Of course, more means I'm stronger. And you said it yourself. You, you think of yourself as ordinary and you have to outwork everyone. So I have to do more. My workouts have to be more exceptional, more unusual, more difficult, more challenging because we need that, right? That's kind of like our armor. If we're doing that and you know you're out working everybody else, I can get on that track to run the 10,000 meters then, or I can go to the NCAA XC championships and line up and I know I'm ready because I'm, I'm out working everybody. But guess what? If you're out working everybody and you're literally at the edge of mono or complete exhaustion or muscle failure and you don't have your strength, you're not going to race well. So there you are. You're back to almost your high school levels and then the actual magic happens. So, I mean, the, the NCAA uh, race, it's, it's like one of the great upsets, man. And you, you pulled it off. So what was it like coming into it? Let's just say like that last month or couple of weeks leading up. I mean, did you, in your mind, did you see that as a possibility? Did your coach see it as a possibility? Like, what was it like your last, say, month of workouts, like leading up, you know, before that huge win? Yeah, it was, it was pretty wild because, um, you know, there was a lot of changes in my life and, you know, I came off an injury earlier that spring and, um, you were kind of, it was kind of just about getting my feet on like under me again. And, um, all of a sudden we kind of just hit this stride, you know, this really nice groove where like every workout was just like, okay, like we're kind of getting somewhere. Like I'm running splits and I run before I'm dropping teammates that I usually, you know, I'm struggling to keep up with. And, um, it just kind of got exciting because it was all happening right at the time it needed to. Um, and after regionals, you know, the way I ran that race, the way we closed, um, that was the moment where I was like, all right, I'm like a different athlete than I've ever been before. Like I can hang with guys that I didn't know I could hang with. And now it's just about being ready for one day. And we, that's where we really just wanted to sharpen, you know, sharpen the, the knife, I guess, or really, um, um, yeah, I get sharp. And, uh, my last few workouts, I remember just like, we were getting giddy. Cause they were like, Oh, like we're on the edge of something special here. And as I was leaving, you know, it's kind of where my friends like addressed it. They're like, you're like ready, like, just like go for it. And I went in with the, with the goal of if I'm first team all American, that's better than anything I've ever done before. And I would be ecstatic being first team all American. So that, that was my goal going in. We had a chalkboard in, in our house and that that's what was written on it. 
And, um, you know, as the day got closer, um, you know, and anxiety is kind of building. I remember having a conversation with my coach Sullivan and uh, he and I were kind of talking strategy and the, the main contender was Kiprop who, you know, I, I went toe to toe with at regionals and I learned kind of the mistakes I made in that race. And we talked about applying them that way. And I kind of had to say it, I was like, I think like, you know, if I beat him and, you know, we do this right. And I run well, like, I think I could win the whole thing. And, uh, that was the moment where he's like, yeah, I, I think you can too. And, uh, at that point, that was the last little bit of validation I needed from someone I trusted, um, you know, a credible source and an NCAA champion himself. And it was like, all right, fuck it. Like it's go time. <laughs> like now it's time, like, like now it's time to do it. Like there was nothing else. Like I had the belief, the fitness, I was ready. And I went to the line that day and I was like, I'm not scared of anybody here. And these are guys I've been scared of my whole career. Matt Baxter, Tyler Day, um, Kiprop. Like these are guys I was always intimidated by and it was just different. I was like, I can beat these guys. And um, throughout the race, it just was about not settling because I got to a point where I was going to almost certainly be first team All-American and in that moment, it was just about deciding like, all right, no, today that's not good enough. And then it was down to top five and that was already exceeding my expectations. All right, that's not good enough. And then when it came down to top two, that was the hardest one because I was going to be pretty damn happy about a second place finish at nationals. And, uh, the last 100, it was just, you know, one last reminder, like, you know, you've come this far, like just fucking like finish it, you know, <laughs> just like seal the deal. And I, through literally every ounce of energy I had into my arms to just flail myself to the finish line. And the moment that resistance broke between Kiprop and I was just like, it was like cathartic. Like I couldn't even, I can't even explain that feeling of just like, I can't believe this is all about to happen the way I always felt it was supposed to. And it was just such an emotional um, experience coming to that finish line, as you've probably seen, uh, by video or <laughs> in the photos. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was just, I just felt so proud and happy and overwhelmed to be on the other side of it all, to just know that everything I went through culminated in, uh, uh, you know, accomplishment that I always thought I could do, but doubted so often along the way. Unbelievable. I get chills, man. I think, <laughs> didn't you, didn't it take a, wasn't it a 55 or 56 second last lap to close it out? Cause I mean, I know how close it was right to, to, to pull through and to, and to take it, take it at the line. Right. It was, wasn't it like 55, 56 second last lap? Yeah. Um, 56 second last lap, which was fast. I've ever closed uh, a 28, 34, 10 K, which I've never run before. Like it was, that, the biggest challenge before that race was just the confidence to accomplish things. I didn't even know. I didn't know how they were going to feel, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I mean, that just comes from trust and, uh, that was the training we had and the coaching I had and, um, the buildup, I just trusted, I wasn't scared of anything. And, um, I wish I could say that about all my races, but it's not something you can just create. You know, I had coaches tell me all through my career, be confident, be confident. And, one of the biggest takeaways from that season is confidence isn't just like it, it's not just created out of nothing. You know, it's like, you can't just be confident or I couldn't at least it had to come from experience and uh, the way that whole season of training just went 
um, I was able to build the confidence that I needed to execute on the day. And uh, I finally felt like what true confidence feels like. And it's just lack of intimidation towards really anything. And uh, that's very empowering. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's just so well said because these are great athletes. There's respect, huge mutual respect, but there's a difference between respect and being a little bit fear, fearing and thinking like, ah, I really can't beat Kip Rob, right? You, you erase that feeling. You took that barrier away yourself. Like, but you had, no matter how many people told you you could win or how positive you were, even your teammates saying you're ready, you had to believe you were ready. You had to go through all those cycles, all those buildups, all those injuries, cutting back the mileage, getting stronger and peaking at the right time. But you believed that you were ready. Um, and it, you, it wasn't, you weren't ready a week or two before it was literally days before it was changing. <laughs> yeah. You're changing the whiteboard, which I absolutely love, man. You're taking us behind the curtain, man. This is the stuff <laughs> yeah. I live for, man, because you know, literally two days before, if you had to run that race, you probably wouldn't have won it. You you needed, you needed another day, day or two to be like, okay, your coach thinks I can win. I think I can win now. So it's one thing you no, I think I can win. You thought you could, you, the last piece you had to move on the chessboard was second place. You had to like get past that. No, I can actually win. And then of course we can't leave this discussion without the where's mom moment, because yeah. that's like <laughs> as famous as it ever gets, man. I mean, it's just like, where's mom? Like, you know, you come blasting through. Oh, and by the way, the break dancing clearly must have played a role in your finish line breakthroughs at the tape, yeah. man, because the Falmouth finish and the NCAA finish, I was wondering like, where does this dude get the juice of the power? Well, clearly we should have been doing some dance when we were young, doing yeah. some break dancing and some tap and some jazz because, dude, that's that's where the power comes from, man. You're just like bursting across the line. Where's mom? What a moment, man. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, all those races, they were just, uh, they were just truly so emotional and for very different reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, the where's my mom thing, I've always, you know, I've been asked that, you know, you got, you could only imagine how many times and uh, like, I've never really, even through self-reflection, been able to, to really define what was going through my mind. It's just, it's just what I was thinking and what I said. And I didn't even realize it was said until after the fact when, you know, it blew up a bit and Shalane Flanagan was tweeting at me that I was like taking all in. I was like, what even happened in that moment? And, uh, but I, what I, what I am sure of is that I'm very glad that was what I said, because, um, you know, in a weird, I guess, metaphor, or I guess quite literally in this circumstance, uh, you know, it was such a big part of, um, at all, you know, it was like having my parents there, you know, my parents bought those tickets to Eugene when I wasn't even sure if I was going to run that season. Cause I was hurt in a pool and, uh, to have them there for a moment that, you know, we all thought I was capable of, um, and, you know, the impact they've had throughout my career to get me there unconditionally. Um, it was just like, that's, those are the people I wanted to just acknowledge right away. And, uh, there's so many other players, uh, that were also part of that team, but, um, you know, it was, it was truly, uh, amazing to have them there and, and for that to be what came out of my mouth at first. Um, and, you know, just the, the, and, and the fact that it's just as funny as it is uh, <laughs> and it entertained others. Uh, I, I'm very happy. I'm very proud. And, uh, I would do it all again. I love it, man. And the fact that they were there just makes it so much more special because whether a race lives on in YouTube or anywhere else, it's nothing like having your family there. There's nothing like that in the world for them to be at a finish line or at 
wherever they are in the stands, it doesn't have to be the finish line. It could be around the first turn. It doesn't matter where, but the fact is they saw you clicking off those laps. They saw you in the mix and they saw you like have a chance to like pull this, you know, miracle win out and you did it and they were there. And, um, emotion's a beautiful thing, man. Sharing it is a beautiful thing. So it's, it's awesome. It'll live on for sure. And, uh, I, I could only imagine, you know, what your mom and dad must've been feeling. I can't even imagine like how proud they must've been at that moment. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was, uh, it was a wonderful night, you know, you know, got to do my victory lap and see them there, but then to see them afterwards and have a drink and have food and spend the next few days with them and call my sisters. Like it was, uh, it was, it was truly overwhelming support. Um, like any, you know, nothing I've ever experienced before. Um, and yeah, it's a memory we all share together and, uh, it was, it was, it was amazing. So, uh, amazing time in my life. And how about for your coach, obviously, because a coach is such a big part of it, obviously, because they're in there with you, man. They're in there with you. In his case, not for all four years, three, right? But, you know, someone you idolize, someone you looked up to, someone who, you you know, was literally a poster on your wall. So he's part of it. But then you have your teammates. So what was it like from that side, like with sharing it with your coach and your teammates? What was that like? Yeah, it was, it was very sentimental. Um, you know, doing the victory lap and same thing, like embracing Sully, it was just a very, you know, like, holy shit, like we did it moment, you know, it was just like, like, can we can believe it, you know, it's just like, to both be there. And that was just awesome. And uh, the teammates, it was, it was uh, crazy, because, um you know, a lot of those guys didn't make it to the national meet that year. Um, and you know, you're off the hook at that point, they're all seniors, they all graduated, they've got no incentive really to come to practice. And they actually stuck around and they paced me through all my workouts to just, uh, you know, turn up the quality to as high as it could get really. So, um, and that made a huge impact. So to, to, for them to see that, you know, and I know they watched it live and, you know, they all sent me videos of them watching and the support. It was like, I, you know, they weren't there right in that moment, but I, I couldn't wait to share that moment with them. And I felt so proud to represent, you know, our team and, you know, our class and, you know, everything that we were building together at Michigan. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just a really proud moment, um, where I just, I wanted to, celebrate with everyone, you know, everyone for different reasons. Um, and I got those opportunities, fortunately, where I got to spend time with my family, you know, got to spend time, uh, with my teammates when I got back to Ann Arbor and, um, you know, those moments were just wonderful. And, um, I was trying to just show gratitude towards everyone that, um, you know, was, was part of that process, which was a lot of people in my life. Awesome. Totally awesome. So from that incredibly epic high, uh, the payoff of all the work, all the miles run, all the grinding to have it end on such a high note on the collegiate level. Take us from there, you know, training with your group, training at Michigan, being on campus, you know, back, back there for that last year, for training from there to moving off campus, how your uh, career starts as a pro, like where are you based? I think you're in Virginia, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So where, where did you go from Michigan? Like what was your path? you know, in terms of like coming off campus and who you got involved with, which group, et cetera, coaching, you know, just kind of talk through that process a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I always wanted to run pro big dream of mine. I'm a big track nerd. Um, my dream was to make the Olympics and run as a pro athlete. And, uh, you know, I understand the sport well enough that I know how hard those opportunities are come by and how steep the drop-off is. 
Uh, so the main moment I crossed the line at NCAAs, I just went from being someone that was, you know, not really in anyone's mind to a recruitable pro. And I was like, holy shit, like I can sign a contract, you know? So I was so giddy about that idea um, where there was a lot of uncertainty in my life and I didn't know, you know, whether I was going to keep running or if I was going to, you know, buy a rock climbing membership and hang at the gym, <laughs> you know? So uh, that opportunity I wanted to capitalize on. So I met with Dan Lilo and um, he worked as my agent to start looking at deals. And um, the Reebok group uh, that I'm now a part of really wasn't on the table at first because it didn't exist. It wasn't even a thing. Uh, there were some rumors about it, but um, I didn't, I wasn't in the in crowd enough to really know that it was going to actually come together. So uh, I looked at a few options. Um, it was basically coming down to uh, Brooks, uh, the Hansons group in Rochester, Michigan. Um, and then Reebok, I saw Justin Knight's post about him joining that team. And my philosophy was I wanted to know every option possible before making a decision. And I wanted to tell everyone that I was as open-minded as possible. If they wanted me to run the marathon. I would entertain the idea. They wanted me to run 800, it was going to be a stretch, but I would have entertained the idea for, you know, to see what they had to say. So I was, as soon as I saw that, when I was pretty close to signing a contract, I was like, I need to find out more information about this. And fortunately with my connection to Justin being Canadian and uh, being friends with a couple of the other Syracuse guys, Colin, Benny and Philo, um, I pretty much messaged anybody that could get me a conversation with Fox. And um, I actually remember very distinctly the moment I got a phone call from coach Fox um, I was at a, actually a, a governor uh, convention in Michigan that my friend was working on and AOC was speaking on it actually before she became big. It was actually pretty wild. But anyways, that moment Fox called me and I went outside and um, took that call and I couldn't be more excited at the potential of joining um, such a legendary coach, someone who um, had such high credibility. So um that process took a little bit long um, in terms of filing the details and getting pen to paper. Um, so by the time I actually raced at BIC 7 um, on the roads, I finished second there, a big performance for mine, um, of mine uh, on the roads. And then I went to Falmouth and I was actually hoping to run in a Reebok uniform at Falmouth that first year in 2018. Uh, but unfortunately, we didn't have all the deals worked out. So they were able to give me the shoes. Um, so I wore the shoes for that race, but I, I wasn't a Reebok athlete or signed the contract. Um, and after that performance, when I won, uh, that was, you know, the catalyst to get everything across the line and be like, all right, let's get this thing like sealed today. And uh, we got it done. And I was able to represent Reebok for the first time um, when I broke four minutes in the mile for the first time in New York, uh, which was a great, great start to my pro career. Um, and then took some time off and, then I uh, finished my grad school in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, where I spent with my girlfriend. And then I moved to Charlottesville and that was, that was started to started the pro running business. And, uh, I was pretty excited about that opportunity. That's fantastic. So you did, you did your due diligence, you dug in there and studied it the same way you did on the college front. You know, you wanted to have some opportunities to look at and really dig in and, uh, you know, that's the way it's got to, people got to really take it that seriously. I mean, it's, it's a really hard way to make a living. It's really tough life. Um, it's a physically demanding life. It's, it's mentally tough. Um, it just, it can wear almost anybody down. Um, and you have to have incredible resiliency, um, to be successful as a runner and whether you're on the track 
or your distance marathoner, which is just why I just have to bow to Kipchoge all the time because it's just <laughs> amazing to see the dude just drop a 14.35 5K at 35K in the marathon and just be like, okay, guys, I'll see you. No I'll problem. see you at the finish line. And, and they're all like coming across running like they were in the Sahara Desert and they're all like reeling and falling over. And he's just sitting there smiling, glowing, and just like, you know, Yoda at the finish line, like, hey, everybody. You know, come give me a hug. You know, it's all good. So uh, isn't it absurd? He's so good. It is. It is absurd. Um, but you know, it's also incredibly cool. Um, and I know for you, uh, running a sub four had to be huge. Um, and at the armory, right? So uh, that was um actually at uh Kyle Merber's event that he puts on out on Long Island. Oh. It, was, it was it was outdoors heading into that indoor season, and then I ran at the armory for the first time. Uh, that indoor season, um, which was also like, you know, being at the army the first time was the coolest thing ever. Cause you know, I've seen a million races there, but never got the chance to compete. So that was a pretty cool experience for me. Yeah. The juice in that building is bananas. It's and, awesome. And it's a fast track too. I mean, it's, uh, it's great to run on and, um, I won't be threatening any four minute miles anytime soon, man, unless you give me like a scooter or something to do some <laughs> laughs, but yeah, that's awesome. So that was a big goal. I mean, who doesn't want to run a sub four? I mean, that's a huge goal. But was that always like a childhood goal or just came as you gotten older with your running or? Yeah, similar to other accomplishments that I had in my career, it was something I always wanted to do. And um, for a long time, thought that it was out, like I was never going to be able to do it. You know, even when I moved to the 10K, you know, I found an event that I really was good at that naturally um, I had an easier transition than maybe others. But it still didn't convince me that I could run for 67 quarters uh, plus a big close. So, um, but once I kind of hit those breakthroughs and some of the workouts I was doing, um, there was some indicators that my speed was in a place that um, it never had been before. Um, so it was pretty cool after I announced that I was going pro and Falmouth was done and I actually didn't have any other obligations or races that season. Sully and I like, you know what, let's just have some fun. Like, Let's just rip some 200s, rip some 400s, see how good we can get these legs going and try to break four. And, um, you know, I ran the fastest splits I've ever had in the 200 and 400. And two weeks later, ran 357. And um, it was pretty cool and a cool testament that, like, you know, just by shifting training around a little bit, you can really sharpen yourself in a, in a different way. So, yeah, there, Sully and I actually have a video from a road mile I ran earlier that year in Ann Arbor. Um, in which I said, I, I asked him how fast he thought I could run a mile. And he said four minutes and we were both out of beer in our hands. And, you know, I got all pissed at him. Cause I was like, you're going to tell me I can run four minutes on the dot. Like, you know, how disrespectful that is. You won't say three, three, nine point nine, 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 nine. He's like, no, I think you could run four flat. So, uh, that was, that was like two months in advance. Uh, so to, you know, finally get the chance to do it. We were both pretty excited to see me run three, three, seven. So now he's using reverse psychology on you. He's, yeah, he's, it works. He's, he's tweaking you a little bit. And, you know, as you, as you go for more awesome uh, milestone things together, he's going he's gonna to try to play that card again for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. No doubt about it. So, um, so you were not signed with Reebok officially in 2018 when you had your uh, first Falmouth win. Um, what was that like? I mean, when you showed up there for Falmouth, you know, obviously the NCAs are long behind you now. Like uh, in that race, like 
did you really think you had a shot? Like the field that day, what was the race like that day? I wasn't there in 2018, so I don't know specifically. Obviously, I just remember that epic shot of you like leaping through the air like Spider-Man crossing the line. And I'm pretty sure it was uh, Scott Favel was second that year, right? So, and he was in really good form that year. I mean, he had, he was super strong, um, very healthy. I know he um, ran a great New York um, and had some other you know great performances. So what was what was the race like that day as it, as it played out? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of parallels to the same NCAA performance where um, you know one of the biggest confidence boosts I had besides my training was my race going into it, and that was uh, the Big Seven. Um, and it was it's a pretty low key race. It's actually amazing. Like a, I love that race. It's electric. I would recommend anyone go run it. But um, it also was pretty low key. Like not everyone knows about it. Um, I didn't know about it. And uh, anyways, a really difficult course. Um, I came second there. I finished about maybe 10 seconds ahead of Leonard Career, who was quite fit and doing really, really big stuff on the roads at the time. Um, and that gave me some confidence. I was like, all right, I can, I'm, I'm fit for the roads right now. And uh, when I went to Falmouth, um, you know, I had all eyes on Steven Sambu. You know, he's coming off a four year consecutive win streak at Falmouth. And I'm like, all right, this is the guy to beat. Like, but similarly, I, I went into that race being like, I, I think I can beat any, like, I think it's not so much. I think I can beat, but it's like, I think I can compete with anyone here and the fitness I'm in, in the way I'm closing races. If I'm there in the last 400 against a lot of guys who aren't running 10 K's or five K's on the track right now, like, I think I have the wheels to run away from guys. And, um, sure enough, I felt great going into the race and gun goes off and, you know, like Falmouth, like, you know, the numbers being in the road is like the coolest thing ever. Um, and I just remember those similar to this year, like those mile markers were just flying by, like, it was like, get through the first three miles. Don't think much then get to four, then get to five, then get to six, then get, and I'm like, holy shit, this race is almost over. Like, it's like, you know, it's like, I was going through that, like, just get to these markers before you start focusing. And, it, and I felt so good that I'm like, it's go time. And I didn't even really notice. And uh, sure enough, Fobble, you know, pressed it from mile six and made a real hard move um, that I was able to respond to. And um, similar to NCAAs, it was just convincing myself, you know, that second uh, wasn't good enough on the day. And I had to at least go for it. I didn't know if I was going to win or not, but I had to try. And when I got to the top of the hill, um, I remember feeling quite delirious, um, you know, pretty spotty, a little bit like tunnel vision. And uh, I remember just seeing the American flag, knowing like how close that finishes. And uh, the morning of the race, uh, Scott Gelfie, who's now the president of the road race, he was, I was staying at his house. Um, he was my host family. Uh, and, uh, he mentioned that like to make sure you're in the lead by the time you get to the downhill, because it's too aggressive and you can't pass anyone there. So when I saw that American flag, I just made one more gear and got away from Fobble and fortunately had the lead. And, and similarly, once I knew I had in the bag, like just to know I was about to win an event of that magnitude, like a major road race with, you know, prize money and, you know, pros, like as a new college kid, it was like, holy, like, I'm not just winning a college race. Like I'm winning like a race, like the top, top, like an actual top of the line race. Um, that's kind of how I felt coming down the hill. So, you know, I was pumping my arms. I was going crazy, just being like, just in, like, just so excited about 
the fact that I was in that position and then, you know, the leap across the finish line was completely like impromptu, um, you know, a split minute decision. And, uh, you know, I couldn't have got captured better, uh, by the amazing photographers there. So, and that was awesome. And, you know, again, my family all came, um, you know, Scott cared so much about the race. He was on the mic, just screaming as I was coming in, which was cool. Uh, my cousins were there who were supposed to drive back that day. And they're like, no, we're going to stay and like party all night with you. Cause like, this is unreal. And, uh, the, the like road race scene is just so cool. Like it's so community based, so grassroots, um, something you don't really experience as much on as the track side, especially in the collegiate track side. Um, so for all the locals to be like congratulating me, if they never met me before and, um, all that local support was just like, so cool to, to be involved with. Like it was I'll never forget that day. It was, it was amazing. A young American shocks the field, man. I mean, it's like, Hey, the energy of that race is just, it's enormous. Um, and the community just builds all year, you know, to get ready for that race. And the traditions are so strong and people are out on their front lawns and lining the streets, you know, every step of the way, cheering everybody on. And yeah, I mean, that hill at the end, man, if you don't have anything left, you're toast, man. So it's amazing. You're telling me you were like a little uh, tunnel vision because I could see it, man. It, it's hot. It's hot there every year. It's humid. You've already pushed so much and he makes a move. So you're just like trying to hang on at that point. But that's great advice he gave you because you're right. It is such a steep downhill. I don't, I mean, two great sprinters together, no way anybody's going to walk anybody back at that point. Maybe, you know, a half a body length or something, maybe you might be able to close and catch, but it's just, it's too much. It's too aggressive. Like you said, so you had to get there and get ahead. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing, but to pull it off in 2018, you know, you have some injuries, you don't get a chance to come back and defend, but they made you part of the race, which was completely awesome. You know, you're on the panel, you know, you're now part of the community, you're part of Falmouth and the history, and then you get to come back this year. Um, you know, how were you feeling this year coming into it compared to 2018 when you won? Oh, so nervous. <laughs> so nervous. Like it was coming in as like, uh, I mean, maybe not I wasn't a reigning favorite, but a uh, reigning champion, but coming in as a, as a past champion, my first time coming back, um, you know, you just want to prove yourself, like prove, like I've done this before and I can do it again whenever you want me to. That's what you want to be going in. But like, you know, that's kind of the facade in your head. You're like, holy shit. I don't know how I did that the first time. And now I got to do it again. <laughs> so um, you know, the craziest thing is like, uh, so my girlfriend, Hannah, I actually met, in 2018 from that race. And we went to Michigan together. She was on the golf team. Um, so between 2018 and 2021, Hannah and I have gone back to Falmouth numerous times. So not only did I, you know, become close to the community through my win and coming back for the race, I've been, you know, six, seven times hung out with the race directors, you know, the board, you know, I've spent so much time in that community that like my roots were so deep that I just had, I felt like I had the community behind me and, uh, I just wanted to capitalize. I wanted to do them all, you know, the, the pleasure of watching me win in front of them and, uh, to come in, I, I knew that was on my mind. So I really tried to like reel it back and be like, listen, just like, don't think about winning, just put yourself in it. The goal is to just contend. If you contend, you're going to be happy because no one can ever control that much that they can guarantee a vic victory. I don't know how, you know, maybe Kipchoge on our earlier note, but even he has tough days. So, 
I was just like, as long as I can just be in it, I'm going to be happy. And, um, you know, I, I, I definitely created a strategy and I was feeling good leading up to the race. And, uh, similarly to 2018, I, the gun went off and I just felt great. You know, each mile just went by. And as each one went by, I was like, wow, like I'm not, it's not getting that much worse each mile that went by and that I'm going to have a lot in the tank for last mile. The only thing that concerned me is I kept looking back because I was in second right behind Frank Lara. He was pushing the pace the whole race. Um, and you know, I know how much that can take a toll on you. So I was like, all right, like he's, he's got to be tired by the time we come this last mile. So let's, it's probably just gonna be me and him. And I keep looking back and there's like 10 guys there. And I'm just like, how is everyone still here? Cause we were running fast. You know, we went through 2850 through 10 K and I'm just like, how is everyone still here? <laughs> and the only thing that scared me because I felt pretty damn good. I was just nervous that someone felt better. Like I was like, there's 10 guys here. One of them's got to be feeling pretty good. And sure enough, by the time we got to 10 K and uh, you know, about a half mile out, it came down to five. And then at least I was like, okay, it's good to know that most of those people were on the ropes. And now we just have to see, you know, the remaining five, how everyone's feeling. Um, and coming up that hill, same, I, you know, I have a better understanding of the course than I did in 2018. And I had a, um, a benchmark. I, I, there was a 25 mile an hour sign at like the crest of the hill. And then there's a crosswalk right after that. And I did a stride the day before. And when I went from there, I remember being like, holy shit, I am flying without <laughs> like putting that much energy into it. Like you can fly in this spot. So, um, when I, I guess put that all together and, you know, we're going last quarter mile, like you got to go. And I just went, um, at that moment and I basically was kicking all out like way, um, in advance. And I just, I think I just got away from everyone, uh, way earlier than anticipated. Um, so it was almost like the finish line was the, t was the, the start of that downhill. And, um, again, once I got there and bombed it down that hill, I just couldn't contain my excitement because, you know, it was just, it was about just delivering in a really high pressure situation and to be able to capitalize, um, given those circumstances was just like, I, I was just so happy it all worked out. It was almost like a sense of relief. That's beautiful because now they know you. I mean, you've been back there many times. You said six, seven times. You've met with the board. You know, you've met with the race director. You stayed, you know, as the with them as the host family. So, you know, now you have a presence there. And uh, to be able to pay it off the second time, you know, your girlfriend's from there. Like, it just, it has such a deeper meaning to be able to do that a second time. And to win that race twice, there's just a handful of people that have ever won that race twice. And uh, some have won more than twice, you know, three, maybe even four times. But the history of it, it's big. Um, you know, to add your name on there for a second time, again, at such a young age, is, is really really amazing. So awesome stuff. Another great finish line photo. You know, I, I, it's hard to pick which one, which one you like better. I mean, there, there won't be any debating on the podcast graphic for this episode. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a thousand percent going to be either 2018 or 2021. So I don't know this and I should, but which year did you run faster, 2018 or 2021? I ran about five seconds faster this time. All right, baby. We're going, we're trending in the right direction. Yeah. And I thought this, this, time was actually, um, way tougher conditions in my opinion. And granted, you know, you have the super shoes now, and I do think that makes quite a big impact as well. But, um, like, I know you're absolutely right. That Falmouth is always a grind and it's always hot, but in 2018, it had to be one, probably one of the best days ever there. Um, it was a pretty bad headwind, 
was the only thing to slow us down. But outside that, temperature was great. Overcast. Uh, this time was quite hot. Like I took water and splashed it on me every chance I got because, um, you know, when you get to surf drive, you know, the sun's out. Like you just bake out there. Yeah, I do remember because my good buddy Greg, who I was talking about before in 2018, said that all the years he's run it, 2018 was the best weather. And then I ran it in 2019 for the first time. Oh, and it was so bad. Brutal, dude. We yeah. were dying because he was having a rough day. He was ahead of me and I picked him up around, I don't know, three or four. And then I just said to him, I go, dude, let's go, man. You're coming with me. So he just got on my shoulder and we got to run. And that's his race. Like he's been doing it for years, raising money in the community. And he goes up there every summer and you know, to be able to just like finish and do our airplane arms coming in, you know what the crowd's like, man, the giant flags there, the, it's, the energy level's like off the hook. And this is pre-COVID, so we could all party and hang, and you said it so beautifully. I mean, the track races, NCAs and all, the energy is great, but it's very, it's it's driven down to that team level. It's very smaller. It's compact. The energy is big in terms of like for the team and for your coach and for your families and what you want to do. But these races are like, they're life unto their own, man. You know, you're like a rock star, man. You just won the race and you won it for a second time. It's like, Hey man, let's get a selfie with Ben. So I know I got one and now we got you on the pod. So it's like double bonus. So awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I was on the card that day when you ran in 2019 and I remember just being like, Oh my God, <laughs> it is toasty. Like it's, it's hot. And when it's hot sitting on your, you know, sitting on your ass on a cart being driven, I can imagine you know, how hot it is when you're running as, as hard as you can seven miles. But, uh, to see you and Greg after the race was pretty awesome. Cause, uh, you know, I, Greg took the time to, uh, you know, come and shake hands with me, introduce himself, um, the day before and, you know, coming in as a injured, guy you know to have someone come out and you know it'd still be supporting me was meant a lot to me so when i saw you guys cross the finish line I, I was really excited to you know congratulate you in your moment you know across the finish line and being done with it all so uh that was really cool for me well it was cooler for us so <laughs> i appreciate it so thanks for hanging with us man and, and doing the fun selfie stuff so um what's next on the racing side you know, where do you see things going, you know, in terms of like, what are you going to stay focused on? Are you thinking about moving up in distance at all? Or are you just like so content with right where you are? Cause obviously the results are, are going really, really well. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so, you know, in the near future, like I'm on the off season now, uh, that was a perfect place to end the season and, uh, just regroup for another training block. Um, so we shut things down and, uh, yeah, we'll go into some good, like strength-based training, um, I'll probably run the roads or maybe cross country race in the fall just to, you know, stay fit, have something to like keep, you know, motivation towards, um, long-term, you know, I mean, I'm going to move to the marathon at some point, you know, which I'm really looking forward to because, um, I think the marathon is sick and I think the environment, you know, I think it's like, you know, road racing on steroids. Like, it's just like another level that I don't even know what I don't know yet. Um, and I'm pretty excited to be a part of that. Um, it's just a matter of when the timing's right. And we're in a really unique time right now where COVID put us in a position where, you know, we got world championships, um, world championships, world championships, Olympic games all in the next three years. Um, and I've never made the world championships on the track. I've made a ton of progress on the tracks at a new PR and the 5k and a 10k this season. Um, so I just have the momentum there that I want to run on track at least one more year. Um, and I think depending on whether I make this world team, that'll dictate whether I want to go for the Olympics on the track or move up to the marathon and try to make the Olympic team on the marathon. But um, I know I want to run through the next Olympic cycle for sure. Um, I know I want to move up to the marathon. What 
I'm going to be doing at the Olympics and when I'm going to be moving up to the marathon, that's to be like TBD. So I could see myself running another half because I do think there's an ability to run a good half and still come back and run well on the track. Um, the marathon, that'd be tough for me to do. Um, so we'll see maybe Houston. Um, I could see myself trying to like go for a shot at the Canadian record in the half marathon around like 61 30, uh, I think would be a pretty realistic and challenging goal. Houston's a great course, um, both the half and the full, it gets a little windy, but I mean, every race does. I mean, come on, man, you're out there exposed and it's in the winter, but it's a great course. It's flat. It's fast as hell. Great place to go take a shot. Um, what were the 5k and the 10k PRs that you had this year? What were the times? Uh, 1320 for the 5k and, uh, yeah, thanks. And, uh, 2749 for the 10k. Killing it, so, dude. Killing yeah, it. Thanks. Slay so, and marathon. Are you thinking, cause you know, the day, de- the debut is going to happen at some point, but where are you visualizing? Are you visualizing Boston or New York? Cause there's only, that's the only two places it can take place. <laughs> so I don't want to hear uh, about any other places. It's Boston or New York. Where's it going to be? That's fair. I mean, given, uh, you know, the deep roots in Falmouth and spending so much time in Massachusetts, uh, you know, I got to go to Boston. There you um, go. So, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll see. Uh, but uh, I would love to run the Boston marathon. I ran the BAA 5k uh, a couple of years ago there and, uh, felt like an absolute scrub running a 5k while everyone's running the marathon, but, uh, it was, it was amazing to be part of that marathon weekend. And I couldn't even imagine what it's like actually being in the event. Oh my God. Boston will adopt you, my friend. They will adopt <laughs> you. So this is just to date me. Cause we know I'm a hundred, but this is from the hundredth Boston marathon. Wow. That's awesome. So that's me. That, that was my fastest Boston 241, which I ran at 35. Damn. Cause I was, I was a college baseball player. I didn't start running until like my mid thirties. So Boston, dude, they will love you. And the fact that you have your Falmouth history, you'll be totally adopted. You'll be adopted some, man. They'll be screaming their heads off. They'll be cheering. They'll be cheering like wildfire. So, but be patient as you are. Um, focus on world champs and Olympics, man, because that's that's where it's at. So keep building for that. And we'd love to see you, uh, you know, get that right and nail it and uh, get a chance to compete in the Olympics, man. Of course, you'll have to come back on Run Chats and tell everybody what's up. Yeah. Uh, before we let you roll out of here, I always like to get, one uh, little piece of community service, something that each person that comes on my show is involved with in doing. And I know you're doing some some stuff on your end. So just talk a little about that before we roll out. Yeah. Um, you know, I always feel like I could get more involved, uh, you know, at all times of my life. Um, you know, through COVID, it's given me the opportunity to uh, speak to um, college teams, high school teams. I'm actually speaking with a high school team on uh, Wednesday. Or uh, no, it's actually a college team on Wednesday. Uh, which I'm really excited about virtually. Um, you know, my biggest history of uh, community service when I was in Ann Arbor, um, I'm a social work grad, my master's program, and that provided me some great opportunities uh, to get involved with volunteering as well as just uh, social work practice. Um, so during that time, I spent a lot of time um, working with uh, population uh, with autism spectrum disorder, uh, ASD, um, more specifically uh, facilitating like exercise programs, uh, working with kids. And then I spent some time doing some interpersonal practice, um, in a, in a health, uh, mental health clinic, um, working on, you know, interpersonal skills, um, you know, social skills, things like that. And, um, that work was amazing. I, I learned a lot, um, learned a lot about others, learned a lot about myself, uh, learned a lot about, uh, you know, things that, you know, as a society, we could, we could all improve on. Um, but, uh, that's somewhere where, uh, if there's an opportunity, uh, which there always is to get involved in that again, you know, I'd, I'd be really interested in um, getting back into that because um, it's been quite some time. Bravo, man. 
love it. Putting the degree to use, focusing on an area where you have some experience and uh, helping kids on that uh, autism spectrum disorder areas is a beautiful thing, as well as speaking to college athletes about, you know, the grind, the work, what it takes, all of the pressures, all of those things. You have that unique experience, as do other athletes before you, but to give back and talk to them is wonderful. So kudos to you for doing that, man. And really appreciate you so much sharing your inspiring story, bro. It's awesome. It's definitely going to resonate with a lot of people and get people fired up. So thanks so much for coming on and sharing the good stuff with us today. We appreciate you so much. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. Uh, This was awesome. I really appreciate all the insight and great questions and everything you do for the running community. So uh, absolute pleasure to be here and uh, appreciate you very much. So thanks. All right, man. I look forward to seeing you out there where we sign off every show telling people to keep lacing them up, keep getting out the door, and always remember to stay in the fight. Wow, that was such a fun convo. It's just so easy to root for Ben Flanagan. He has such a positive energy and runs with such great exuberance. And I don't think there's a runner in any sport, man or woman, that has more style crossing a finish line tape, breaking tape than Ben Flanagan. So keep doing what you're doing, Ben, and keep bringing that super positive energy. I love seeing how he's connected with that Falmouth community, which has such a story tradition in that race. Um, hearing him chuckle, uh, being on a panel with Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers and Joni Samuelson, that was, that was priceless. I really enjoyed that, along with so many other uh, parts of our conversation. Again, if you're not following Ben already, you know, hop over to Instagram and make sure you give at Ben underscore Flanagan a follow. Um, I think it's going to be big things coming for Ben. I, I know I'm all in on Ben's future, and I can't wait to see him take a swing at the Boston Marathon. I think that course really sets up well for him. And I know um, they basically adopted him in Falmouth, so he will be a favorite son for sure on the roads of Boston whenever he decides to make that debut. Hopefully it's next April. We'll have to see what his health is like and training and uh, what he and Sully put together in terms of their roadmap and plan. I also know he wants to take a big swing at the Canadian National Half Marathon record, um, which I believe is 101 and change, and he's currently at a low 103. So certainly within reach. Um, really fun time. Really enjoyed the convo. Hope you all do as much as we did. So please continue to share. Um, take a moment to post to Instagram stories, Instagram, Facebook, if you have an extra moment and can write a review on Apple Podcasts, it really makes an impact for our show, helps us find new followers for the program, and believe it or not, helps us continue to get great guests like Ben Flanagan. So thank you all for doing what you're doing. The moment some swag comes around, we're going to start doing some fun contests and giveaways And I promise you, the loyal listeners of the show that are doing those steps every weekend are certainly going to be getting some some fun swag uh, once it hits hits my apartment and I become a UPS postal shipping store. Anyway, peeps, as we say at the end of every program, keep lacing them up, keep getting out the door, and always remember to stay in the fight, my friends. Peace out.